Some people criticize the Bible and they say that it's, it shows a God who is unfair. A God who has requirements of humanity that they could never uphold. A God who calls people to do things that they can never do. A God who looks down on this earth and judges it. And some of you have that background. You, before you became a Christian or before you came to church or whatever, you just thought God was this angry being in the sky who had a problem with you. And you found out later that, that God actually has been pursuing you your whole life and desires to bring you into his family, adopt you as his child, and move you from death into life. And the scriptures tell us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness hovered over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1 starts us in this moment of time where there was something there. It was unformed, it was void, it was just murky, and, and the heavenly Father who has existed since before eternity passed, Father, Son, and Spirit, saw fit in that moment in Genesis 1-1 to flip on the light switch and to start to recreate and craft this ball of clay into something habitable and beautiful. And we read in those first opening chapters of the scriptures that what God does is he sets the scene for mankind to be placed on this planet. He turns on the light, he pushes away the waters, he creates the land, and he pulls up the mountains and down the seas, and he scatters the stars, and he governs the sky with the sun and the moon, and he scatters the animals and the fish and the birds and the beasts and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, and he gets the earth created and ready to receive its primary inhabitant, mankind, who is the image of God. And Genesis 2 shows us that the way that God created man was man and woman, and the two were one together, almost showing the world what God himself looks like. Two people in one flesh, in a sense, in the marriage relationship. And God sets man and woman on this planet, and he says, you've got one job. I guess it was three multifaceted, one multifaceted job. He says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, check. Fill the earth, rule over the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And he says, you can do whatever you want. Just don't eat from this one tree. A lot of people hear that, and they say, that's kind of messed up. And God creates this beautiful planet, and he tells humankind, listen, you'll be great. And then he peppers it with landmines and says, good luck. Like rats in a maze, can you make it to the end without dying? And there's this tree, and it's beautiful, and it's flashy. And, and it's like God set them up for failure. I don't think that's what the message of Genesis 3 is all about, that God was setting humankind up for failure. For me, when I read Genesis 3, I see one thing glaring at me, is that God is trying to show us as finite human beings that even if we could do everything in the whole world and there was just one single thing that was a sin, just one thing, eating a piece of fruit, if it was that easy, all you had to do is survive on this massive planet and raise kids and never eat that one tiny piece of fruit, even if there was one speck of thing we couldn't do on this planet, we'd do it. We'd all find a way to do it. 
We started China, we'd started the Middle East, or we started America, we started in South America, and we'd migrate around, and we'd go on this quest to search for that forbidden fruit, right? Even if God hid it at the bottom of the sea, our explorers would find it, they'd eat it and die, right? No matter what God did, we'd rebel against him. And so the whole of Scripture, if you've never understood the story of the Bible as a, as a story before. The whole of Scripture shows us mankind trying to put back together what they ruined by turning their backs against God. After Adam and Eve eat that fruit and death enters into the human race and sin enters into the human race, God says, you know what, you're going to have to be banned from this garden. You cannot eat from the tree of life anymore. And on one hand, that's punishment from God. You're not going to be immortal anymore. But on the other hand, that was the grace of God. Because if mankind lived forever and ever and ever in their sinful state against God, away from God, that's, that's what hell is. Hell is mankind, man and women, existing consciously in a real place, separated from God in their sin for eternity. That's what it would be like if man and woman, Adam and Eve, got to eat and live immortally in their sin. And so God says, no, 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 no. Out of my garden, into the world, your days are numbered. Now go and live for me. And they tried. And they had some kids. Like, all right, maybe if we have kids, the whole thing will come back together. And the one kid killed the other kid. And then we see three chapters later, the world had gotten so messed up that God looked down and it says that he regretted creating the heavens and, or creating the humankind on the earth. And he said, I, I got to put them out of their misery. So that sin was a cancer. This aggressive cancer that destroys everything it touches. And if you've got a background in addiction, you know that that sin that you were struggling with just started destroying everything. It wasn't just destroying your Friday nights. It started destroying your week. It started destroying your family. It started destroying your relationships. That little seed of a sin, it started with a drink or it started with one night or it started with one decision or one click. It destroyed everything. And, and that's what happened when sin entered the world. It just started to destroy it all. And it's like the deep frost went over everything and just... Killed it. So God turns on the waters and the heavens and he floods the earth. He finds one man who was righteous. His name was Noah. He says, Noah, I'm going to use you and your family. And you and your family are going to survive this great flood and you're going to start over. <laughs> and you're going to repopulate this earth. And you're going to be fruitful and multiply, and you're going to rule over this earth and subdue it, and you are going to establish a kingdom on this earth. You go and do it, Noah. And so Noah builds the ark for a hundred years. And the floodwaters come, and Noah and his family, whoop, eight people bobbing on the top of all the seas. And then the waters recede, and Noah comes out, and he starts to cultivate the land. He plants a vineyard, harvests his first harvest, and turns it into wine and gets drunk, falls out naked, passes out naked, and the whole cycle starts again. 
by Genesis 12, God says, I'm going I'm to start with the different people. And so he calls Abraham from a pagan land. And he says, Abraham, come and I want you to be a people. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the shore, as the stars in the sky. I'm going to call your name blessed and your kingdom will never end. And Abraham believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. And God establishes a kingdom with Abraham. And Abraham and Sarah don't have any kids. And Abraham comes to the Lord and says, God, how, how am I going to create many nations? I don't even have a child. And God says, you'll have a child. Your child's name will be Isaac. And he has this boy, Isaac. And it's like it's starting to pick up again. And then God says, Abraham, just so you know, I want you to go and I want you to kill your son, Isaac. He's like, what? And Abraham believes God. So Abraham starts this march with his son, Isaac, and, and they start going up the mountain, and Isaac says, Dad, what are we doing? And Abraham says, well, Isaac, we're, we're going to go and worship the Lord up on this mountain and sacrifice to him. And he puts the wood on the back of his son, Isaac, and they march up this hill, and Isaac is looking around, and he says, Dad, we've, we've got the fire We've got the wood, but where is the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the animal for the sacrifice. And he grabs his son Isaac and he puts him on the top of the wood and he grabs the knife and he goes to slaughter his son and God says, stop. And God puts in another in his place, an animal that's caught in the thicket and he pulls it out and he sacrifices this animal and God says, because you believed me, because you trusted me, because you would not have withheld your only son from me. You would have sacrificed your son for me. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. So there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and then it all starts to fall apart. It goes in the tank again. People get in captivity in Egypt, and then God raises up Moses and says, you're going to be a prophet who's going to bring my people to the promised land. And so God miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea. He parts it, and they walk across on dry land, and Pharaoh's army is swallowed, and they come out on the other side, and then they start to disobey God and grumble. And God says, you're going to die in the desert. Moses, you're never going to step into the promised land. And so he raises up Joshua. And the people try to put this nation together, <laughs> but nothing works. And they raise up a judge, and then they fall. And then they do good, and then they fall. And then they do good, and then they fall. And the people say, God, we just want a king. All the other nations have a king, right? Why can't we have a king that rules over us? And God says, I, I want to be your king. And, well, we want a real king, a human one, right? And so God gives him Saul. God gives him David. And they're like, yes, this is it. Right? This is a man after God's own heart. Right? Anyone can be the king who rules over the people of God. It is David. And then David falls. Sleeps with his neighbor's wife, gets her pregnant, kills his neighbor, lies about it, messes the whole thing up. And God says, the cancer's still here. And for the rest of your lineage, a sword will not depart from your household. People will be warring and battling. And this kingdom that God's people are trying to establish will never be established because of the fighting and get David through your descendants. I will raise up a king unlike any other. <laughs> unlike you. 
unlike your predecessor, unlike Moses, a prophet like Moses, but better than Moses, unlike Adam. And so the people wait. try to serve God and they mess up and they get captured by the Assyrians. And then they try to serve God and they mess up and they get captured by the Babylonians. And they come back into their land and they try to put it back together in, but nothing's working, nothing's working. And religion starts getting formed and they're trying to make it work and nothing's working. And Yet in Galatians, Paul tells us that in the fullness of time, and God sent them a king who would work. A king unlike any other. Uh, a king who was man, who can rule over man, and yet a king who was also fully God. And God shows up in the first century to a woman named Mary, a young girl. And he says, I'm going to bring a kingdom through you. Through you. The power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And you'll bring forth a son. And he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting God. So 40 weeks or so later, Jesus is born. He was born into the same world that was filled of the cancer of sin. And people started gravitating towards him, and sin tried to kill him. Now the king, the ruler at the time, says, well, I don't want anyone else who's going to be a king rising up in my nation. We need to kill every boy. That's the age of Jesus in this city. And so Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, and they hide Jesus. And he goes down into Egypt. And in the fullness of time, he comes up out of Egypt, and God calls him to come back into the promised land. And Jesus grows up. He grows in wisdom and stature. He honors the Lord. He walks in the ways of God, not just in the law that humans had created and not just in the letter of the law of the Old Testament, in the spirit of the law. Jesus fulfilled precisely what God had called a human being to do. What Adam couldn't do and Moses couldn't do, what Elijah couldn't do and the prophets couldn't do, what the kings couldn't do and Saul couldn't do, what no one could do, Jesus did. He honored the Lord, the cancer of the sin, even though it kept trying to get to him. And he was tempted by the devil himself. He stood firm. First and only human being who ever lived who never faltered, never stumbled. Never succumbed to temptation. Never made a promise and then broke it. He fulfilled every promise in the Old Testament, even the ones that people didn't even know were promises. And he started to bring the kingdom of God onto the earth. Started raising people from the dead. Taking sick people and making them well. Coming across blind people and giving them sight. Deaf people and giving them the ability to hear. He reconciled families back together again. He took people who were riddled and demon-possessed and away and alienated from everyone in their city and he pulled the demons out and returned them to their families and he started putting the world back together again. And the murmuring started that maybe the king had come. Could this be the Messiah? It doesn't seem like who we were waiting for. We thought we were waiting for some kind of reigning king, but he is a miraculous one. Could he be the king of Israel? And though the religious people didn't really like him. 
God's people said, this is the one. So as he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they said, it is time for the king to ascend to his throne. Let's welcome this king. Let's let's let him walk up the steps to the temple and sit down on his throne and begin to rule. Let him kick Rome out of our country. Let him kick sin out of our country. Let him rule with grace and mercy and let him do what God has called a king to do. And so Jesus comes into the city on the back of a donkey and they say, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And they worship and celebrate that the king is entering the city and he marches up the steps of the temple. But instead of sitting down on the throne there, he turns over the tables. He takes a whip and he races out all the religious people. And he says, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. And they say, this isn't what we want our king to do. <laughs> our king is on our side against the Romans. Our king is not against us and our religion. And so they started looking for ways that they could put him to death. The problem is there was nothing he did wrong. I mean, he claimed to be the king of Israel, so that's where they could kind of turn against him. And so this whole conspiracy started to turn Jesus into the authorities and have him killed. And so they had Judas Iscariot, one of his closest disciples, turn him over to the authorities. And they handed him over and they put him on trial. And they falsely accused him and they hurled insults at him. And they beat him and they insulted him and they flogged him and they put a cross on his back. And they convinced the government to murder him. And they put a sign over his head on the cross that said, King of the Jews. This is what we do to people who claim to be our king. That sin of cancer that has been destroying the world since the beginning destroyed the author of life. John, in chapter one of his gospel, said, and about Jesus, though the world was made through him, he created the world. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. They were looking for something else. They wanted a king who'd march in, ascend his throne, and conquer the enemy of Rome. And when Jesus didn't do that, they put him to death death on a cross. And the, the beautiful irony in, in all of that is that Jesus was ascending to power. He just wasn't ascending to power the way that they thought that he would ascend to power. You know, there were a lot of people who claimed to be the Messiah who came before Jesus, who had big plans, and they were going to destroy Rome, and they were going to do this and that, and they were going to clear this establishment, they were going to do all these things, and they would keep trying to raise these people up to power. But you can't be a real king unless you kill the enemy first. And so what the people kept doing is they kept crowning people king. This is our king, but he had no real power. And Jesus couldn't ascend to his throne until he beat the enemy. But the enemy wasn't Rome. The enemy wasn't the Jewish people. The enemy wasn't religion. The enemy of God's people since the beginning of time was sin and death itself. Sin was the enemy that destroyed Adam and Eve in the garden. 
Death was the penalty for the sin that destroyed Adam and Eve in the garden. That was the enemy. And so the beautiful irony is when they put Jesus on the cross and they thought they were extinguishing him, all they were doing was setting him up to fight the enemy. And on that cross, Jesus fought the enemy of sin. As the Father poured out the wrath of God in full for all the sins of all the world, Jesus suffered and died as the sacrifice for our sin. Right? He was the one who died instead of Isaac on that wood pile. He was the one who throughout all of the Old Testament was the beautiful picture of what had to happen in the sacrificial system. That sin must be atoned for. Something must be killed for the sin. But bulls and goats couldn't do it. It had to be a human. It had to be God himself. And so even though so many people think that God is this angry one in the sky looking for a way to smite us, The story of the Bible is that God is one who watched us suffering and dying on the earth because of sin, and he himself stepped off his throne, put on flesh, dwelt among us, and then became the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus died on the cross, and they put him in the grave. And Jesus went to battle with death itself. And that's the enemy of mankind. And that's what Adam and Eve lost when they left the garden was the ability to live forever because of their sin. And so Jesus died for sin. He wrestled with death and he emerged from the grave alive and victorious. He walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, moved the stone away and started his work where he might be able to now ascend his throne because the enemy of sin and death were beaten. And after 40 days on the planet, he turns around He walks up the steps to his throne in heaven, ascends into heaven with all the disciples just looking out there. And then when he gets to the heavens, he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God and he begins to reign. The king comes into Jerusalem. He fights the enemy of death and sin and wins. He ascends to his heaven and he starts to rule. And the moment that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, All heaven breaks loose, everywhere. A rushing wind comes and the Holy Spirit enters the earth and all of a sudden these disciples are filled with the power of God himself. And Jesus from his throne is starting to orchestrate this this new way of life, this new kingdom that's emerging onto the planet. Peter and and. And his disciples are walking, or sorry, Paul and somebody, are walking into the temple and they see a man who is born without the ability to walk. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God comes upon them and it's like Jesus from his heavenly throne works through these men and they say, get up and walk, and he walks. They get thrown into prison. And they're sitting there thinking, well, I guess this might be the end. And then Jesus from his throne goes, and the doors of the prison open and they walk out and they start preaching again. And they realize in that moment that the kingdom of God is unstoppable because their king is on the throne and he's invisible. They can't get him. He's up there and he starts controlling everything. He controls the elements. The the men are on a boat and they're going through the sea, uh, the Mediterranean Sea up towards Rome and God shipwrecks him for an opportunity to share the gospel. He makes a snake bite on Paul's hand and Paul is miraculously healed and he preaches and people are saved. You see Jesus from the throne room of God changing and orchestrating over everything in all creation because the work is finished. Because sin has been paid for, because death has been beaten, because the king is alive and he is on his throne and he is ruling and his spirit is working through his people and reconciling people to each other. 
and reconciling people with God. And God is working through all things in creation. He's using pagans. Read the book of Acts. It's crazy. He uses pagans to do his work because he's on his throne and nothing can stop him. And he said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back and I'm going to set up my kingdom in full. You know, the people expected the king to come originally as this military victor on this horse and beat all the enemies and kill them and establish this kingdom. And yet the first time Jesus came, it wasn't like that. When Jesus came, he came as humble, as a servant, to shepherd people towards the Lord, to open up the way for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm coming back in judgment. I'm going to come back on that horse. I'm going to come back with that sword. I'm going to slaughter the enemies of God, and I'm going to establish a kingdom on this earth. I'm going to recreate this place, and we will dwell together with God forever and ever and ever. But until I come, until I come, set your eyes on me. Trust in me. Follow me. Tell everyone you've ever met in every nation and people group and cul-de-sac and village on this planet about me because I'm holding back my judgment because I want these people to have a chance to hear this message and turn and be saved, to have their sin forgiven to have their life restored, to receive a new heart, to start to be bearers of my kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a good cancer. It's like a seed that grows into the biggest of all trees. It's like a a field that just keeps growing and permeating throughout all the earth. It's going out, and I'm waiting on my judgment until that word gets out so that every people and every tribe and every nation can hear this message and folks from every people group that I have chosen from beginning of time to reach, will be reached by this message. Some of you have heard that message. You've looked to the Lord, and he's changed everything. There's a story in the Old Testament with Moses, and the people had done something boneheaded, like people do. And they're being under the judgment of God for it. And these snakes, these poisonous snakes come out and start biting people. And they're dying everywhere. And Moses is like, ah, God, help. And the father says, listen, there's a remedy. I want you to fashion a bronze snake. I want you to put it on a pole and raise it up high and tell the people, anyone who looks at this snake will not die when they get bitten. So Moses fashions the bronze snake, puts it on a pole, holds it in the sky and says, look at this snake and you will be healed. Sure enough, people start looking at the snake, and boom, the judgment is gone. The snake bite is not killing them, and they're fine. And and yet so many people in that desert refused to look at the snake. Maybe they thought it was too easy. Maybe they thought they had a better chance of sucking the poison out. Maybe they thought they could just run from the snakes. Maybe they thought it sounded ridiculous, but they ran away and tried to save themselves, and they perished in the desert. In John chapter 3, John tells us that Jesus is the snake in the wilderness. He is the one that God has lifted up on that pole. And though it sounds ridiculous, 
Though it sounds like there must be so many better ways to be saved from your sin and experience life and to do good and to be good with God and right with God other than just looking at Jesus. John said, no, no, look at Jesus and he will heal you. You try to fix up your life, you're going to die. You try to fix up your own relationship with God, you're going to die. You try to run from God, you're going to die. You try to find God somewhere else, you're going to die. But if you turn and look at Jesus, you'll be fine. And, and some of us have turned and looked at Jesus, and we realize we're, we're, we're fine. <laughs> My sin is no longer has power over me. The God is no longer against me. He's for me. The Spirit of God is working in my life and things are starting to change through me and around me and in my family and in my home. God is working through me and I didn't do anything. I just looked at Jesus. But all of us know people who are like, that's too easy. And they're dying. And they can't figure out why. If you are a Christian in this room, you know, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you right now, You didn't do anything to become right with God, did you? You looked at Jesus. He died in your place on that cross for your sin. He rose from the grave to give you life. His life was interposed with yours. It was the great exchange. Your sin became him and your life came from him and you got the life that Christ earned. And tonight, if you're a believer, as you take communion, that's what we remember is that we eat this bread, we drink this cup, and it's like the, the life of Jesus, the merit of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the identity of Jesus is coming into us, and we didn't do anything. We just swallowed, and now everything has changed. We remember that when we eat and drink these elements. Tonight, this is like your first night at church, and you just found out we're not doing it anymore. If you've never been to church before, If you walk away from this with nothing else, remember, life is only found in Jesus Christ. When Jesus was preaching and he told the disciples, hey, unless you eat eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And everyone's like, out. And they walked away from him. His disciples were standing there. And and Jesus says, well, what about you? Are you guys guys gonna leave too? (laughs) It's a hard teaching. And the disciples said to Jesus, where else would we go? Only you have the words to eternal life. If this is your first night at church, don't let it be your last. And Jesus has the words of eternal life. Believe in him and be saved and go and read his word and cling his word and cling to his word and find a place where you can hear his word taught every week and you will find life as the sun becomes real to you as you hear about him. Amen. Amen. Tonight as we experience baptism with one another, If you're not a believer, watch this baptism and understand that what these people are saying is, listen, I was just walking through life and I met Jesus and it's like he dunked me in the water, he cleaned up my sin and I came back up and I'm fine now. It's like I was buried in that tomb and I came back out and I don't know what happened. But what happened was when Jesus was on that cross, he died for that person. And when Jesus came out of that grave, he rose for that person. And so that person is saying, I'm identifying with Jesus. My sin's been washed away. I am dead. My life is hidden with Christ and God. And I have a new life and I'm going to live it for the Lord because he gave it to me. And tonight, if you're not a believer, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Look to him and him alone. Never look away. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the one who will author your faith and he is the one who will perfect it. So just stare at him. Don't turn away from that snake. Keep walking towards him. Abide in him. And he says, when you cling to me, 
all goodness and graciousness and peace and patience and all good things will start flowing out of you, not because of you, but because you're clinging to the source of life. And tonight, let's pray. And then those of you who know Jesus Christ, why don't you come forward, receive communion, and remember that the life you have comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not sandwiches or burritos that keeps you alive. It's Jesus. We eat him for life and never forget it. Let's pray together.